O holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn King. Joy to the world, our Lord is come. Let earth receive its King. Familiar words? I probably didn't, you know, say them as well as you've heard them sung. But I, I think we can all agree that Christmas time is a time to reflect upon the birth of our King. And many times in our world, we sing those songs, we hear them on the radio, and we understand the lyrics that it's declaring that Jesus Christ is Lord. And yet I have a question for each of us in the room this morning, and it's a question that I want us to focus on throughout our time in the Word this morning, and that's simply this. Is Jesus Christ Lord of your life? Well, first, we need to think about that question. What does it really mean? Where would I even start? How would I know? How would I begin to evaluate whether Jesus is Lord of my life? Well, first, you have to go on an investigation of the facts concerning this man and his life and come to a decision about who Jesus is. Not a decision that you read, not a decision that you were taught, but a decision that you come to in your own heart, in your own mind, in your own life. Clearly, this man impacted our world. This year, as we were reminded, is the year 2020. But 2020 years from what? What are we counting? Well, if you guys know, certainly something happened about 2020 years ago in our world. And we've been counting the years ever since. As a matter of fact, the whole calendar system was redone in the Roman Empire in about 370 A.D. And that those initials A.D. were added to the years. What does A.D. mean? Yeah, it's a Latin phrase, Anno Domine, or Domini. And it's, it's translated into English, in the year of our Lord. In the year of our Lord. And so A.D. became the counting system. There was a recognition that something happened that many years ago that changed our world. Something happened. Jesus was born. And there was a recognition that Jesus is Lord. Even in the Roman Empire, it became known that Jesus is Lord. And so they began to, to count the years. We've been recording those years ever since. Now, of course, secularists have decided that they're going to call it the CE. Anybody heard of CE? The Common Era. But they're still counting the years from this incredible man, Jesus, changing human history. And the years that went be, before that are called BC, before Christ. And so we have a calendar system, our entire counting system of years is based on this man's life. Also, the very existence of us gathering today, and people are gathering all around our world. Kurt was just in Africa. Is it, is it true, Kurt, that there are men and women gathering in the name of Jesus in the continent of Africa? You just witnessed it. Yeah, you can, you can ask him. He was there. Hundreds of pastors leading hundreds of people around the 
just the country of Tanzania, not to mention the entire continent of Africa. There are people around the world in China where it is illegal to worship Jesus. There are men and women gathering in the name of Jesus. Throughout church history, back all the way to Judea, the words we read in the Bible, in the book of Acts, the early church, and then for hundreds of years in the Roman Empire, and it began to spread around the globe, Christians were persecuted, they were beaten, and they were even killed for their allegiance to Jesus. If Jesus were an ordinary man, then my question is, why are so many people willing to endure hardships, persecution, and pain, even willing to give their life in order to stay true to their faith in Jesus? Either they're all deceived, they've lost their minds, or they have found something truly extraordinary, irreplaceable, undeniable in loving, trusting, and following Jesus. Even today, in most of our world, and increasingly here in the United States, Christians aren't tolerated for staying true to this man, Jesus. What's so special about Jesus? Let me just say that the Gospel of Luke was written to answer that question. We've been journeying in the, in the year 2020 through the Gospel of Luke. And as Kurt said at the outset, we are now at the end, the last chapter of his book. How many of you guys have been here for every single week? Raise your hand. Okay, there's a few faithful people. How many have at least tried to catch up if you missed a week online? Tried to stay, maybe even read the passage? Just tried to stay connected to this story. It's a beautiful story. It's a beautiful gospel written by this, this man, Luke, who was a doctor, who was very careful and precise in his work. He wanted to answer the question, the most important question of who is Jesus? Luke interviews first-hand witnesses like Mary, the mother of Jesus. She was still around. John was taking care of her, the disciple John. The disciples Peter, John, and others who had spent time with Jesus, who had seen Jesus crucified in Jerusalem, and then had seen and witnessed Him resurrected. These were all witnesses that Luke had access to in understanding and gleaning what had transpired, what had taken place in this man's life. Who did he claim to be? And what were the things that he had done to prove that he was Jesus, Lord of all? Today we're looking at one such example. Join me in the book of Luke chapter 24. We're going to begin and pick up at verse 13. Now I'm going to give you a little context. This is based on last week where John Burgess and Nate Boyd did a great job of, of presenting the resurrection story. But Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, as well as many other women had gone to the tomb looking for a deceased Jesus. They were intending to prepare and adorn his body with spices that was customary in that day. Instead, they ran into angels who asked them, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Can you imagine the shock that these women experienced? Seeing the, the, the stone rolled away from the tomb and up on the stone was angels declaring that Jesus was risen. And the women dropped everything and they ran to tell the disciples. 
The disciples thought the women's story when they heard was nonsense, after all they're women, and they didn't believe them. But Peter ran to the tomb and looked inside, and sure enough, Jesus' body wasn't there. Just the linen clothes, the, the fine linen cloth that had covered his body lay there neatly folded, and he returned home amazed and perplexed at what he had seen. By the way, there's a, there's a cool fact. There's the same linen cloths that were there that Peter witnessed some 2,020 years ago. There is a strong likelihood that those two linen cloths are still available for you to see today. Did you realize that? Now, God doesn't leave us all kinds of evidence, but in this case, it seems like he's left us some evidence of both his crucifixion and his resurrection. Scientists have explored two cloths that exist in our world today. One is called the Shroud of Turin, and the other is called, let me get this right, the Sudarium of Oviedo. The Shroud of Turin is in Italy. The um, Sudarium is in the country of Spain. And they're relics from the past that have been examined by scientists and they're revered by those in the Catholic Church as the burial cloths of Jesus of Nazareth. Now I have some pictures, and I think those are being put up on the screen, of what these cloths look like, but they've been examined, and, and I've posted on my Facebook page if you ever want to read an article that details these cloths, but it's, it's pretty astounding. Just in the last five years, scientists have reached some amazing conclusions that not only do these cloths date back to that period, but they contain blood of a man, the same blood, type AB blood, on the cloths within the linen. The cloths measure up in over 20 points where they, where they have been matched up as being from the same man, the same situation of crucifixion. It clearly displays a man who was crucified. There is uh, wounds in his hands and in his feet. There is wounds in the side. There is wounds in the head that are consistent with a man who received a crown of thorns. There is over a hundred marks, lash marks throughout the body that have been discovered on these cloths. And the interesting thing is, and for the skeptics, they say, well, you know, it could have been anybody that was crucified. The problem is, is not too many crucifixion victims received a Jewish burial. Most of the time they were discarded. They were criminals. They were discarded into shallow graves or just left up on the cross to deteriorate. And in this case, we have a record that Joseph of Arimathea went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. He was a rich man and he gave up his own tomb. And, and there was linen cloth, fine linen cloth. The quality of this cloth is so good that it's lasted 2,020 years. It has pollen, they've discovered, that is only, the pollen only comes from the land of Israel. It isn't, it isn't a pollen that comes from Europe. There are so many different evidences that, that kind of like God has left for us to say, you know what, there's a picture of your Messiah. 
And the picture that he's left, it's very interesting because it's the blood stain. This is the negative image up on the screen of that shroud of torn. It's 14 feet long, 3 feet wide, and they would wrap the body in half with the linen cloth. They would you know, put half of it underneath and then wrap the other side, and they would wrap his face with a cloth, and then they would sew it up. They would actually sew the, the cloth up and allow the body to deteriorate. But they wouldn't sew the cloth closed until, guess what event? Until the, until the body was embalmed with spices. And that's what the women went to the tomb to do. So, so the cloth wasn't sewn yet. And here we have evidence, even scientific evidence, even evidence outside the Word of God about a man who was crucified, buried. And then what's amazing is they have this thing on the surface of the cloth that can, they, they haven't found a man-made explanation for this image. The only thing they can say is that it's, it's layered on top of the cloth. It's not embedded in the cloth. It's almost like an image that has been just x-rayed on top of the cloth through high radiation. And there's evidence that what could have produced such an image? And the Bible tells us that on the third day, Jesus rose again. And that He is light, the radiance of God's glory. We can't even imagine. Do you remember on the Mount of Transfiguration when He transfigured Himself before the disciples? The Gospel of Luke tells us. And that they saw Him in His glory can you imagine that going through the cloth? What would that leave as an image? Well, later, the same day of the resurrection, Luke records this. Follow along in verse 13. Now the same day, this would be Sunday, the day of the resurrection, two of them, two of who? Two, two disciples, two men, who had hoped that Jesus was the Messiah, that He was the Savior, that He was the Deliverer for Israel. Two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles in the direction northwest of Jerusalem. Literally, in the Greek, it's 60 stadia. How many of you guys know what a stadia is? Well, a stadia was a, a, a unit of measure used in the Roman Empire as the distance around a stadium. And it was 600 feet. 60 times 600 is about seven miles from Jerusalem. Now that's about, for the average stroll, that's about a two-hour walk. And these men are walking their way back to a village where we assume they lived. At least one of them it was their home. They had gone to Jerusalem for the Passover. Now the Passover was over. And so now they were returning home. And they were returning home perplexed. Together they were discussing everything they had taken place. And while they were discussing and arguing, you can just imagine, they had hoped that Jesus was the Messiah, but they couldn't reconcile what they had been taught from the Scriptures with what they had just experienced and witnessed with Jesus being crucified in Jerusalem. 
And as they were discussing this, as they were arguing, it says in the Scripture in in Luke that Jesus Himself came near and began to walk along with them. But they were prevented from recognizing Him. Now this is the first account of people being unable to recognize Jesus. In the book of John, the Gospel of John, it says that Mary Magdalene was at the tomb and, and she turns and she sees a man who she thought was a gardener. And she begins to be discouraged because she's like, I don't know what they, what they did with my Lord. I don't know where the body went. And the gardener said her name. And at that moment, she recognized that that man was not a gardener. He was Jesus. In, in the very next chapter, in chapter 21, it says that the disciples went back fishing at the Sea of Galilee. And they see a man on the shore. And it says that they are unable to recognize who that man is. And that man calls out, hey, throw your nets on the other side of the boat. And they throw their nets on the other side of the boat and they bring in such a haul of fish that it starts to sink their boat. And John says, that must have been Jesus. Because he had done that earlier. And so he's doing, doing it again to kind of prove like, hey guys, I'm back. I'm back. And so Peter jumps out of the boat and swims to shore. He's so excited because Jesus is alive. So these men, they're walking along and they don't recognize who has joined them. They're probably thinking, ah, just another pilgrim that's made his way to, to Jerusalem and now he's on the road with us. I guess we can kind of let him into our conversation. Verse 17, then... He asked them, who asked them? Jesus asked the two men, what is this dispute that you're having with each other as you are walking? And they stopped walking and looked discouraged. Now, have you ever been so dumbfounded by something that someone asks that it just stops you right there in your tracks? You know, I'm a Kings fan. It's no secret I'm a Sacramento Kings fan. In 2002, we were playing the Los Angeles Lakers. How many remember that time? And we were, we were a team. I mean, we had Mike Bibby, we had, you know, Doug Christie, we had Peja, we had Divock, we had Chris Weber. We, we had the team. We should have won the championship. But the pesky Lakers were in our way. And it was game four. We were already up two games to one, and if we win game four, boy, it's almost over. Three games to one, it's unheard of to come back from that kind of deficit. And there was a shot taken with only a few seconds left, and the shot was missed, and, and Divock just flings the ball like out towards the three-point line, and guess who's there? Don't even say that. He's not allowed to be spoken in my household. Some guy happened to be there. He's a Laker, and he shot the ball with time expired, and the ball went through a three-pointer at the buzzer, and it killed us. And now this series was even, and the referees did the rest to kill us. Amen. But I can just imagine at that time I'm in Sacramento, and I go outside my house, and somebody says, hey, why are you so upset? What, are you the only person who wasn't watching the game? That's what I would have said. What is wrong with you? Where have you been? I believe that that was this moment. The one name. Cleopas. And it's interesting, Cleopas could also be called 
Clopas. It's just another variance of the name. The only other time we, we see the word Clopas in Scripture is there is a woman named Mary who is married to a man named Clopas. It's in John chapter 19, verse 25. And she is at the cross when Jesus is being crucified, along with Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus. It specifically mentions a woman named Mary, the wife of Clopas. Now, we don't know for sure that that's this man's wife, but it's possible. This man named Clopas, he's named here. We don't get the name of the second man traveling. We only get this man. So it seems like this man was known among the disciples. This man was a disciple. This man was likely one of the 70 that Jesus sent out. Remember where he sent him out to deliver a message two by two? Go into the different towns and villages of Israel and preach the message that Jesus has come, that the, the Messiah has come? This man was probably within that circle. The one named Cleopas answered him, answered Jesus, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that happened there in these days? He's dumbfounded. He's like, Where are you? Who are you? What is wrong with you? Jesus continues to play dumb. Verse 19, What things? He asked them. Now, I thought about this a little bit. I go, Why did Jesus play dumb? And I'm, I'm struck, I'm left with this because he does the same thing in my life. He allows me to vent. Anybody ever been there? Do you think Jesus doesn't know it all? He knows it all, right? He knows it way better than I know it. But sometimes I just need to unload. Sometimes I just need to get out my frustration. And Jesus is patient with us. Jesus, it doesn't offend Jesus at all if we start yelling and hollering and crying and, and whatever's on our heart and our mind, he is willing to listen to us. He's willing to listen to all of our frustration, all of our pain. That's our God. He loves us. You know, I've had children come to me injured and I can see they're injured and I'm like, what's wrong? You know, and I allow them to express to me as, as their father, as someone who, who they're hoping will make it better, make it all better. They can just pour out their, their pain and their frustration. And that's what our Lord Jesus does when we're experiencing pain and frustration. What things, he asked them. So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, powerful in action and speech before God and all the people. You see their faith coming out. This is the man that we have our hope in. He's a prophet. And how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. Besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women from our group astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. You know, it's interesting God had already been working to give them evidence. God had already been working to show them 
that the things that they were discouraged about, they don't need to be discouraged about. There was evidence that, that Jesus had been risen just as He had said. The women had told them. Peter had found it the way that the women had said. And yet these men still aren't seeing the truth. They still aren't believing. They still can't comprehend. They're still stuck in their own thought, in their own picture of what they thought Jesus should be. And they're still stuck in their despair. And that's when Jesus gives them a little correction. Verse 25, he said to them, how unwise and slow you are to believe in your hearts all the prophets have spoken. Didn't the Messiah have to suffer these things and enter into his glory? He asked them a very simple question. Didn't the scriptures say that the Messiah would have to suffer these things and enter into his glory? It's all written down for you guys. Why are you guys so hard of heart and so blind to see what the Messiah was sent to do? And so then he opens up their eyes. Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. It's rightly been said that if you want to understand the Bible, if you want to understand this book, you need to see Jesus on every page. This book testifies not of just a bunch of random collection of stories, but it is telling the story of the One, the Redeemer, the Savior, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. That's what this book is all about. And Jesus takes them on a journey. Now, if you know anything about me, you know I love the Old Testament. I love seeing this story played out. So I am jealous of these two guys. I wanted to be there. I wanted to hear the greatest conference ever given by the greatest teacher. This is the greatest Bible conference you could have ever attended. Given by the one who wrote the book. And he's able to point out to them exactly who he was. Imagine that conference. What was their basic problem? Their basic problem was they didn't believe all the prophets had written about the Messiah. The problem was... The same as with most of the Jews of that day. They saw the Messiah as a conquering Redeemer, but they didn't see Him as a suffering servant. As they read the Old Testament, they saw all the glory, but they didn't see the suffering. They saw the crown, but they didn't see the cross. The teachers in that day are not unlike some of the success preachers that you may hear today on TV. They're blind to the real message of the Scriptures. So my question this morning is this, where did the Scriptures point to Jesus? A better question might be, where do they not point to Jesus? But let me just take you on this journey, because I wasn't there, but I'm just supposing that Jesus might have started in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Listen to this, it says in Genesis 3.15, And I, speaking, God speaking to the serpent, the serpent that had deceived Adam and Eve, got them to disobey God, got them to enter into sin. God is upset with the serpent, with the enemy, with Satan. And he says this, I will put enmity, hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. The woman's offspring one day will come and crush the head of the serpent. 
but you will strike his heel. This is the first promise in the Bible of the Redeemer, of the, of the Messiah. It's from the very beginning, from the, the first story of the Bible, Adam and Eve. There's a promise made. And I'm sure he went on and he probably lingered at Genesis 22. It tells the story of Abraham who was instructed by God to take his one and only son and to lay him on an altar and to sacrifice him. And in obedience, Abraham journeyed with his son Isaac. And they went up a mountain that just happened to be the same mountain that one day Jesus would walk up carrying a cross. Isaac carried his wood, the wood for the altar, on his shoulder. Jesus, some years later, carried a cross up that same mountain. You think Jesus said, hey, that story really wasn't about Abraham and Isaac. That story was about me. And then I'm sure he went on to Genesis chapter 37 where we, where we read about a man named Joseph who was betrayed by his own brothers, who was sold for pieces of silver and left for dead in a pit, sold into Egypt as a slave. Is there any correlation between what happened to Joseph and what happened to Jesus? Well, sure there is. Jesus came and he was betrayed by his own disciple. He was betrayed. He was sold. We read about that, what Judas did to him. He received silver in exchange for selling out his own brother, Jesus. God wasn't finished with Joseph, and years later, he, he elevated him to the highest place of Egypt. And when his brothers were in need and desperate, they came seeking help in, in the land of Egypt. And guess who they ran into? They ran into their brother, Joseph, who they betrayed. And did Joseph condemn them? No, Joseph forgave them. Joseph loved them. And that's the heart of God to all of us who have betrayed him. Have we all betrayed him? The Bible says all of us have gone astray. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all betrayed the Savior. So does the Savior have condemnation for us? No. He has forgiveness and deliverance. That's the story of Joseph. But it was pointing to Jesus. And I'm sure he went on from there and he highlighted Moses. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your fellow Israelites, you must listen to him. This is the words of Moses. It says, the Lord God will raise up a prophet like me one day. Now, who was Moses? We know Moses was saved from death as an infant. Do you remember that in the basket? Was Jesus saved from death as an infant? Oh, yeah. Remember Herod said, kill them all in Bethlehem. And God, God allowed Jesus to escape and flee to the land of Egypt to escape the hostility of that king, that pharaoh. Wait, am I telling the story of Moses or am I telling the story of Jesus? You remember that when Moses was given the commission to begin his ministry to free the people from the land of Egypt, he came into Pharaoh and he announced the first plague. What was the first plague? He turned all the water into blood. Jesus comes on the scene and he's at a wedding, a celebration, and he turns the water into wine. Wow, that's how Jesus began his ministry. 
And that's how Moses began his ministry. And at the last plague, we read this, that Moses says the firstborn of all the land will die unless they are covered by the blood of the Lamb. It was Passover, the culmination of Moses delivering the people from their slavery. What had just happened here in the story of Luke? It was Passover. And there was a man named Jesus who had just given his blood, shed his blood for the forgiveness and for the liberation of all the people from their sin. What story is it? Is it the story of Moses or is it the story of the Messiah? Jesus was walking them through the Scriptures and showing them how everything pointed to Him. Oh, I would have loved to be there. I would have loved to have been able to see all the points of Scripture and how they pointed to Jesus. What an exciting, amazing book this is. This didn't come from natural means. It was written by over 40 different human authors over 2,000 years. And yet, it tells one story. How is that even possible? I couldn't even tell one story writing at the beginning of my life to the end. And yet, God supernaturally oversaw the story of His Son Jesus and He gave it to us as a permanent record for us to see the Messiah and believe. You know, I'm sure He went on to many other stories. There was probably... The book of Leviticus. This is still in the book of Moses. Moses is the first five books of your Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's also known as the Torah. Jewish male children up to the age of 12 are required to memorize the first five books, the Torah. That was part of their journey into adulthood, receiving their bar mitzvah as a Jew at the age of 12 or 13. And so... Here's all the stories that he's just highlighting just from these first five books that point to him. There was the Levitical sacrifices. The tabernacle layout pointed to the reality of who he was. The ceremonies, the Day of Atonement. I don't have time to tell all these stories. The serpent in the wilderness in the book of Numbers. All of these point to the Messiah. They point to Jesus. All of these and much more just from the first five books. And this isn't to mention the prophets that are beyond. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a child. Had Mary not been with Joseph, the Scriptures tell us she had not been with Joseph. She was a virgin and she conceived and she gave birth to Jesus. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 10 and 11. Isaiah chapter 53, the suffering servant. It, it outlines his death on the cross. And at the very end of chapter 53, it says that he will not be left to decay. He will be risen. These are all from the prophets. Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 23. Daniel 9, 24. The book of Psalms. David writing. Psalm 22. Psalm 69. It's endless. I can't. I don't have time this morning. I would love to go into every one of these. I just want to highlight some if you're taking notes. Amos chapter 8. This is an interesting one. I'm going to take a second for this. Amos chapter 8, verse 7 through 10. The prophet says that one day the sun will be darkened at noon. 
The sun will be darkened at noon when God deals with the wrath of his people. Now you tell me, what did Luke say happened when Jesus was on the cross at noon? Jeff taught it two weeks ago. It says that the sky was supernaturally darkened. That it was darkened for three hours from noon to three o'clock while Jesus was on the cross. And Amos chapter 8, verse 7 through 10, predicts that that's going to happen. Why? Because the story of Amos is not the story that you might think Amos is writing. It's the story of the Messiah. It's the story of Jesus. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, tells us where Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, that says, after Elijah comes, after the one who comes in the spirit of Elijah, who announces... That was John the Baptist. He even said, I'm one of the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. After that day of Elijah, there would be the Messiah that would come. Throughout Scripture, it's it's pointing to Jesus. He didn't just teach them doctrine or prophecy. No, he taught them the things concerning himself. Luke 24, 27. Listen to what Jesus says to the Pharisees. In John chapter 5, verse 39, I think we have this slide. You study the Scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. You think that just by following the instructions of the Old Testament, the law, that if you just do it perfectly, you're going to gain eternal life. This is Jesus in an argument with the Pharisees. Listen to what He says. These, what what are the these? The scriptures that the the Pharisees were so addicted to. He says, these are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. These were blind guides. The Pharisees had, had missed the point. You know, today people read this and they miss the point. You know, there were two men walking on the road to Emmaus who had, who had been with Jesus. Did they recognize him? No, their hearts had missed the point. They're blind. Verse 28 of our our passage, they came near the village where they were going, and he gave them the impression that he was going farther. But they urged him, stay with us, because it's almost evening, and now the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. I I think this is a little funny. Jesus acts like, oh, see you guys. And they go, no, 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 no. You keep coming over here. It's, it's getting late in the day. You should stay with us. We're not done being marveled at what you're sharing with us. Now, how many of you guys love a preacher that much that you're like, wait, 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 don't dismiss. I know it's noon. It's lunchtime. Don't dismiss us. Keep going. Yeah, I'm not Jesus, so. But hopefully we have a hunger and a thirst for the Word of God. Hopefully we are excited when we begin to see the reality of what Jesus has painted for us. We appreciate it. We cherish it. We relish in it. Do we love God's Word that much? So he went in to stay with them. Verse 30, It was as he reclined at the table with them that he took the bread, he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened. And they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. There's the resurrected body that one day we will have. Sounds pretty awesome, huh? If 
you don't want to be where you're at, you just, you're gone. You can move wherever you want. There's no more physical limitations. That wall does not matter. You can just go right through it. Right? It says that we will receive the same glorious body that Jesus Christ has. I'm looking forward to that day. Anybody else? Especially like right after I get up from the morning and I have all these like cracks and cranks and I'm like, I need a new mattress. Anybody always feel that? And then you buy a mattress, you're good for like five days. And then you're like, I need a new mattress. Must be my body, not, not the mattress, right? Then their eyes were opened and they said to each other, weren't our hearts ablaze within us when he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? Man, if your heart does not go ablaze when the word of God is open, what is wrong with you? What is wrong with me? What is wrong with us? God has left the most important revelation for us to read, to digest, to get excited about. We don't have to worry about COVID and all the restrictions and all the craziness. We have Jesus. We have a future. We have hope. We have peace. We have joy. Or we should, if we know him, if we're following him. At the beginning, I asked you a simple question. Is Jesus Lord of your life? And I challenge you that you have to go on a journey to discover who you think Jesus is. Who is Jesus? It's not a question that I can answer. It's a question that only God's Spirit can reveal to your heart. Through the Scriptures, through the Word of God. Is Jesus Lord? of your life? Or is he just another important historical figure who gave some good wisdom and then is dead and buried like everyone else? If that's the case, where's our hope? Either he's dead and in the ground and we're all fools, or he's risen and we better get excited about it. Amen? Is he God in the flesh, the fulfillment of scriptures, the promised Messiah, the Savior of the world? who was crucified for our sins and was resurrected to reign forever of Lord of all creation. Romans 10, 9 says, this should be our response. Everything, everyone's salvation hinges on who they see Jesus to be. And if we agree with this record from the book of Luke, that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is Lord, we should pray this prayer. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. This is Romans 10.9. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. He's not some dead guy somewhere. He's a risen Savior. If you confess him as Lord, the Bible says you'll be saved. The Bible says that every sin you've ever committed will be forgiven. Because he took the punishment for your sin on that cross. On his own body. He exchanged His perfect, righteous record into your account. His millions of dollars went into your bank account. And all of your poverty went on Him. What an exchange that happened by faith in the cross. What does it look like for Jesus to be Lord of your life? Listen to how they respond. We're closing with this. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. That very hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem. Wait a second. They said it was too late for Jesus to keep walking. They got to go in and stay the night. 
Did they delay? Did they go, oh, tomorrow. It's too late to walk. It's getting dark. Did they delay? No, they didn't delay. It says that very hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem. Now, I told you earlier it was a two-hour stroll. How fast do you think they got there? Doesn't tell us, but I bet you they were double-timing it. They found the eleven, and those with them gathered together who said, the Lord has certainly been raised and has appeared to Simon to Peter. Then they began to describe what had happened on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. How do we know that Jesus is Lord of our life? Number one, we're eager to obey all that Jesus asks us to do. If you're not eager to obey Christ, you need to question whether he's your Lord. If he tells you to to do something and you say, I want to do this instead, is that Jesus being Lord of your life? Absolutely not. That's you still in rebellion. You being your own Lord. Jesus says that we need to confess Him as Lord and then we need to live it out. Number two, are we eager and excited to share Jesus with others? If we're ashamed to say the word Jesus in public, the Bible says if you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you when I come with my angels in glory. Let's not live ashamed The Apostle Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God to save all who believe. Let's live it out. Let's share Jesus with others around us. And finally, are we energized to reveal what Jesus has done in our lives? Listen to what it says. It says, they started to describe what had happened to them on the road. They were excited to share what Jesus had done in their life. And they had and let them know that they had seen him in the breaking of bread. This morning, we're going to spend some time in communion together. You know, there's nothing special, like Kurt said this morning, with this bread and this cup, but it's symbolic of the bread that Jesus broke with his disciples in the upper room. On the night of Passover, he took the bread, and he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples. And he said, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do you realize that on that road, those disciples didn't see him until he sat down to eat with them. And he took that bread and he broke it. Now, I don't think that these disciples were in the upper room, but I bet you they had heard what Jesus had done in the upper room from their friends in Jerusalem. And now they were seeing Jesus as that broken bread for them. Is Jesus the one who gives you life? The bread of life. If he is, then take and eat. This is his body which is broken for you. Do it in remembrance of him. The Bible also tells us that after the bread, he took the cup, the third cup of the Passover meal, the cup of redemption, the cup that says, I value you. I see value in you. The reason I see value in you is because I love you. I cherish you. I want a relationship with you. He took that cup, the same cup that was referred to as the the time where God redeemed his people Israel out of Egypt, out of the bondage. We, We talked about Moses. He took that same cup and he said, you know, blood was shed back with the lamb in Egypt. 
but I'm going to tell you there's a, a greater blood that's about to be shared, and it's mine. And I will shed my blood because I value you, because I love you, because I want to buy you back. I want to redeem you. And so as we take this cup, help us remember what it represents. It represents the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for us. And if we have faith in Christ, we put this blood on the doorpost of our hearts and the angel of death will pass over us. It won't touch us. Death can touch you no more. You are eternally secure in the arms of Jesus. Do it in remembrance of him. Let's respond in worship this morning.